This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. Welcome to Historia Ecclesia. Today we have the fourth installment in Daryl Hart's class on J. Gresham Machen, entitled Ecumenism and Intolerance. We are in the fourth week of a series on J. Gresham Machen, um, titled something like Fighter of the Good Fight. Um, and uh, I'm going to hand out a outline of today's lesson. Um, sorry about this. So far, we've uh, covered a couple weeks ago what prepared Machen to fight. We looked at his um, his background, family background, church background, education, and then we've turned uh, this big part of the courses or series is on uh, what Machen fought. And last week uh, we looked at Christianity and the crisis of Western civilization and how Machen's service in uh, as a YMCA secretary during World War I may have challenged his ideas about culture and the relationship of Christ and culture, and particularly the way that Protestants had identified the cause of the West with the cause of Christ. And we even got a little bit of an echo of that perhaps in um, the, one of the quotations that, that uh, Camden read from A.A. A. Hodge um, when Hodge spoke of liberty and civilization as part of God's providence. I'm not saying that we shouldn't regard liberty and civilization as good things, but um, there was an optimism, and we'll see more today, uh, there was an optimism among American Protestants that may not have been justified and that came in for a serious um, questioning during World War I. Um, So this week we turn to ecumenism and tolerance, and to give away the plot, um, I want to argue and show, I hope, that Machen was for intolerance, properly understood, and he was against ecumenism, uh, badly understood. And the reason for going to this topic this week, and I'm trying to somehow organize the course chronologically around the dates of Machen's life, and so there are two dates in the outline I think you can see. Um, On the first page, it's 1920, the Plan of Organic Union, And the second page, uh, point two, is The Origin of Paul's Religion, published in 1921. These are dates obviously very close to um, uh, the end of World War I, um, and these are activities that absorbed Machen's attention uh, when he returned to the United States. So he comes back to the United States from, after spending a little time in Paris, after the war and uh, enjoying some of the uh, life of Parisians there, bookstores, uh, theaters, art galleries, um, and then gets back to work in America teaching at Princeton Seminary as an assistant professor, but he also is facing a deadline of having to give lectures on Paul at, uh, at Union Theological Seminary in Richmond, Virginia, 
which is the basis for the book, The Origin of Paul's Religion, but he also is elected as a commissioner to the General Assembly of 1920, which met in Philadelphia. And this is really an important date, 1920, um, for Machen's development. And one of the reasons is that it makes him aware of developments in the church and actually turns Machen into something of a committed churchman. Um, and in the book, while looking at Paul, he also begins to uh, make arguments specifically against the kind of liberalism that, he, that he's seeing in the ecumenical efforts on display at the General Assembly. So, first of all then, let's look at this plan of organic union. Uh, this is really a momentous time um, in the life of the Presbyterian Church and even in the life of Princeton Seminary, as I hope to explain more. Um, and it's, and it's um, something that even conservative historians of the Presbyterian Church have not necessarily paid sufficient attention to, in my estimation. So, I have some um, quotations from it. It's not a very long document, um, considering how colossal uh, the plan was. So I, let's just look here at the, at the preamble, which I have on the outline. Whereas we desire to share a common heritage, the faith of the Christian church, which has from time to time found expression in great historic statements. Well, which times has it found expression? Would you care to specify which times? Just Oh, from time to time, found expression in the great historic statements. The, the, would creeds come to mind? Which, would you want to identify any creeds here? Anyway. Um, so, secondly, whereas we all share belief in God our Father and Jesus Christ his only Son, our Savior and the Holy Spirit, our guide and comforter and the Holy Catholic Church, through which God's eternal purpose of salvation is to be, is to be proclaimed, and the kingdom of God is to be realized on earth in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments as containing God's revealed will and in the life eternal, and whereas, having the same spirit, owning the same Lord, we nonetheless recognize diversity of gifts and ministrations for whose exercise due freedom must always be afforded in forms of worship and in modes of operation. So that's sort of their statement of the faith upon which this union is going to be based. It is a very, um, it's a very short statement, considering how long the statements of the Christian church are. It's, it's, it's even shorter than, for instance, the Nicene Creed, um, and not much longer than the Apostles' Creed. Um, and <clears throat> if, you, if you wonder why Orthodox Presbyterians are suspicious uh, often of, of statements of faith that sort of, I mean, this kind of on the surface sounds nice and sounds good, but when you look at, want to sort of inspect the details and look, look under the hood to see what's really going on here, um, it doesn't look all that good. And, and the Orthodox Presbyterian Church has had that spirit since the beginning, and it goes in part to the sorts of reactions that this plan would have, both from Machen and other faculty members at Princeton Seminary. So it's not as if the OPC is unusual in being um, critical of statements like this. this is, there's a long tradition going on before the OPC, represented in part by Old Princeton Seminary and the, and the professors who taught there. Okay, so here's the plan then. After the preamble of this, this basis for union, you have the plan. Now we, the churches here too, are setting 
as hereinafter provided in Article 6, do hereby. There's, there's a great sequence. Hereto, hereinafter, hereby, agree to associate ourselves in a visible body to be known as the United Churches of Christ in America for the furtherance of the redemptive work of Christ in the world. This body shall exercise in behalf of the constituent church the functions delegated to it by this instrument. And then later on in the, in the um, presentation to the General Assembly, there's this language further attached. The attention of the General Assembly is also called to the vital advance which this council achieves over a mere church federation. That's an important phrase, over a mere church federation. Real powers, executive and administrative, are committed to it, that is, to the, this council. It is an organization in which, as sister churches, we can unitedly do things and not merely talk about them. To quote from the proposed plan of union, the first of its specific functions reads, the council shall harmonize and unify the work of the United Churches. It is also empowered to direct the consolidation of both the missionary activities of denominations and of individual congregations in overchurched areas, as the interests of the kingdom of God may require. I'm not sure interests of the kingdom of God is really a good way of putting what the kingdom of God is about, as if the kingdom of God has interests or rights or something. Anyway, um, there's, there's a lot going on in this plan, even for as, as short as it is. Um, and what the, one of the things that uh, you can see here is, um, is perhaps a very brief statement of the Christian faith that doesn't really do justice to the diversity of theological expressions in the various creeds represented in the various churches that would be forming this union. Those churches would include Baptists, Lutherans, Episcopalians, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, Methodists, um, some Reformed churches. The Dutch and Dutch Reform wouldn't be there as much, uh, but the German Reform would be. So you have a, a real diversity of uh, creedal expressions here: Arminian and Calvinist, Pado-Baptist and Credo-Baptist, people who with different views of the Lord's Supper. Uh, people with different views of church polity and the way and, and the scriptural norms for conducting the work of the church. These are all coming together, and they're all coming together on the basis of this very simple second whereas, which is really quite something. It's also interesting that they recognize the diversity of worship, but don't necessarily recognize the diversity of creeds, which suggests that we're going to let people in the pews continue to go about on with the worship they have. And probably the people don't care as much about the creed, so we don't have to really do as much with them. And then it also says that this church is not, this United Church is not merely going to talk about things, it's going to do things. Well, what things is it going to do? Well, some of the things it mentions here, not necessarily part of the plan, but drawn attention to at the bottom of that left-hand column, as far as consolidating missionary work of the denominations and individual congregations. And one of the plans contained here was to create Union churches. You can still go around the United States and find union churches, which were sort of an after effect of this plan, which I should say failed in the end. No, this, this united church did not happen. But there would be union churches um, around America where you take the Congregationalist church in town, the Baptist church in town, and consolidate them into one congregation. And so you can still find those, and one of those places you can find those is in Seal Harbor, Maine, which is where the Machins vacationed in the summer. 
as, along with a lot of other notable Americans, among them John D. Rockefeller. And Machen actually preached in that church at one point at Rockefeller's invitation. And then about the second or third time that Rockefeller invited Machen to preach there, Machen finally said, no, this really isn't a good idea. Even, I'm opposed to this sort of thing in the first place. He was trying to be civil and preach there the first time, but decided against it the second time. But anyway, this, this plan was calling for the, the union of these churches on the order of not simply that the churches may be one, but on the basis of efficiency. It's not efficient to have two ministers in one town when they're both saying the same thing. They're doing the same thing. Why don't we just have one pastor? So, and this was a, there was a business, business ethic behind this, trying to, to make the churches more efficient. <clears throat> um, now, why an organic union as opposed to a church federation? Why is that important? Um, well, again, the United Church would do more than talk. It would actually try to do something. And there's a difference between an organic union and a federal union. And if you follow the history of the United States, you know something about that. In the, in the old days, when the federal government was basically very, had very little power, the states had most of the power. And this really was a federated form of government. It was a federal republic that the United States had. That changed dramatically with the Civil War, where the cause was union. And remember that, the cause was union Civil War. And, um, and that increased the power of the federal government, more on the order of the national government as opposed to the federal government. And the churches already had a federal council. Um, as you see here, point A at the top of the right-hand column on the handout, there was a federal council of 1908, and you can also see it on the back of the handout. Um, in 1908, the Federal Council of Churches was formed. And that federal council was a lot like the original plan for the federal government. All the churches would have their own power, like the states had, and could run their affairs the way they did, but they would, co they would cooperate in some measure with this federal council of churches. But the federal council really didn't have a lot of power. So this plan for organic union wanted to give the churches much more, give this, this central body greater power and take some away from the churches. Um, and in fact, a similar plan for an organic union occurred in Canada. And in 1925, there was the formation of the United Church of Canada, very similar to what, the United, to what was trying to happen in the United States. And church union, as I hope to show, was in the air, and it, and it succeeded in Canada in a way that it didn't succeed in the United States. And just a little point of information here that's sort of interesting. That was, a, that was a union of Presbyterians, Methodists, and Anglicans in Canada. There, now, and there were groups of Methodists, Anglicans, and Presbyterians that stayed out of that united church. So now you, it's interesting. It was, it was designed to create union, and what it did was create one more church so instead of having three churches, now you have four. One is the United Church, one is the Methodist Church, one is the Presbyterian Church, one is the Anglican Church. Um, but the Presbyterians who stayed outside of that United Church in Canada, they had a theological college in Toronto, Knox Theological College, and in 1926 they invited Machen to be the president of their theological college because they were impressed with his sort of opposition to this plan of union, that, among other things. So anyway, that's kind of interesting, the parallels between... United States and Canada, and why it succeeded there and didn't succeed in the United States. Um, but 
the, the important thing to see here about this, this plan for organic union is that it is the culmination of 50 years of ecumenical endeavors among Protestants. And that 50-year mark means that it go, it's going all the way back to 1870. In fact, 1869. And it's just on the heels of the Civil War, again, when a war was fought to keep the, the Union together, to maintain the Union of the United States. And one of the, um, if you look down at point B, getting somewhat ahead of the outline, I want to come back to this quotation I have here. But point B, that, that Union really did start with the formation of something called the Evangelical Alliance of 1867. That was actually a British organization that had an American uh, affiliation here started in 1867. And the rhetoric for this was very much the rhetoric coming out of the politics of the Civil War and preserving Union. Um, and then that was followed by the reunion of the Old and New School Presbyterians in 1869. Uh, the Old and New School Presbyterians in the North decided to put aside their differences over some aspects of Calvinism over support for parachurch organizations and things like that, and, and form the, um, one church in the North, the church in the North being... Oh, just PCUSA, and the, the reunion of the old and new schools in the South was called the PCUS. Uh, leaving off the A and the S in, 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 the, in the case of the Southern Church meant they're going to recognize the importance of those states, which is what the South was trying to do, was to preserve the integrity and the rights of the states. And the Northern Church putting the A in that name meant they were going to um, emphasize the union of the United States. Um, and so, and actually, these churches remain separate. Those divisions remain all the way down to 1983. It's not until then that the northern and southern churches actually finally put to an end the, uh, the animosities from the Civil War. Um, but so you, you have the old school and new school reuniting in 1869. Uh, and the old and new school uh, Presbyterians were very much involved in these plans for union of all Protestants along um, in 1875 comes the World Alliance of Reformed Churches, um, which is an international body to unite Presbyterian Reformed Churches, primarily in Europe and North America, somewhat in, South, South, in Africa as well, in South Africa, I, although I think that's too early, but maybe I, my dates are mixed up. But anyway, it's primarily uh, transatlantic. Um, and then you see a Presbyterian Alliance in 1877, there were some Presbyterian groups that stayed out of the Evangelical Alliance. The Southern Presbyterians, for instance, weren't exactly happy to be cooperating with Baptists and Methodists. So the Presbyterian Alliance was going to be a way to, to bring in those dissenting Presbyterians at least into another kind of alliance. So they were somewhat in the Evangelical Alliance, but it was a Presbyterian Alliance only with those who were in the Evangelical Alliance. But it's a further effort to try to consolidate the, all these Protestant groups. Uh, the creedal revision of 1903 occurs in the Northern Church, where there are chapters added to soften the edges of Calvinism. But it's also, that creedal revision is very much done 
for the union, again a union, with the Cumberland Presbyterian Church of 1906. The Presbyterian Church USA, the Northern Church, and the Cumberland Presbyterian Church merge in 1906. Significant merger because the Cumberland Presbyterian Church was an Arminian Presbyterian body. When, when they were established in 1810, they kept out chapters from the Westminster Confession that really highlighted God's decree, election, the covenant, and things like that. So the creedal revision had to happen in 1903 to make possible the union with Cumberland Presbyterians. And then you see the, the, the Federal Council of Churches formed in 1908, but it doesn't stop there. We need more of a union than just the Federal Council. So you have the plan of union in 1920, the same year that the PCUSA also merged with the Calvinistic Methodist Church, which is a uh, an offshoot from the Welsh Calvinistic Methodist Church, basically Whitfieldian Wesleyans who uh, formed a kind of Presbyterian body. Claire Davis, who taught for many years at Westminster Seminary, actually grew up in the Calvinistic Methodist Church. So union is very much in the air. Things are, are, are coming together more and more and more between 1870 and 1920. Um, and, and 1920, the plan of organic union is the granddaddy of them all, one could argue. Now, back to this quotation I have on the outline. This is language from the minutes of the General Assembly, which is leading up to the reunion of the old and new school churches in the north. And it's, this is a remarkable quotation. Let's just read it together. The changes which have occurred in our own country and throughout the world during the last 30 years, that's how long roughly the old school and new schools were apart, arrest and compel attention. Within this time, the original number of our states has been very nearly doubled. And all this vast dominion is to be supplied with the means of education and the institutions of religion as the only source and protection of our national life. The population crowding into this immense area is heterogeneous. Six millions of emigrants representing various religious and nationalities, religions and nationalities, it should be, sorry, have arrived on our shores within the last 30 years. And four millions of slaves recently enfranchised demand Christian education. It is no secret that anti-Christian forces, Romanism, ecclesiasticism, rationalism, infidelity, materialism, and paganism itself, assuming new vitality, are struggling for the ascendancy. Christian forces should be combined and deployed according to the new movements of their adversaries. It is no time for small and weak detachments, which may be easily defeated in detail. Before the world, we are now engaged as a nation in solving the problem, whether it is possible for all the incongruous and antagonistic nationalities thrown upon our shores, exerting their mutual attraction and repulsion, to become fused in one new American sentiment. If the several branches of the Presbyterian Church in this country, representing to a great degree ancestral differences, should become cordially united, it must have not only a direct effect upon the question of our national unity, but reacting by the force of a successful example on the old world, must render aid in that direction. To all who are striving, it should be, sorry, to reconsider and readjust those combinations which had their origin either in the faults or the necessities of a remote past. Now, this sounds more like a political convention than it does like a church body. This is, this is, this is, a, this is a church that's more concerned with 
cultural diversity and these immigrants and these different forces that are going to maybe change the demographic complexion of the nation. And then if they can unite all these people, that might have some effect on Europe as well. But this is a church much more oriented to the politics of the nation than it is, it seems to me, to the theology of the churches that are uniting here. And if people wonder why the old school and the new school reunited, despite never really having solved or resolved the differences that led to the division, this is partly the reason, because they were so swept up in the challenges facing the nation, and they wanted to unite to serve that cause, and by uniting they could then somehow be an example of the sort of union that they wanted to achieve in the nation and make the nation strong. Um, so, <clears throat> this, the, the point I'm trying to make then is that um, Protestant ecumenism that's going on between 1870 and 1920 is very much bound up with, if not an expression of, something we call the social gospel. And the social gospel was a loosely defined movement in American Protestantism in the late 19th and early 20th centuries trying to respond to the crises that were facing modern America. And those crises were things like what's going on here, all this immigration coming to America. Why, is that all the, why are all these immigrants coming to America? Well, they're coming to America to work in big industries that are expanding. The industrial base of America was expanding, particularly oil and railroads. And a lot of these immigrants are coming to work here, and they're congregating in cities, and the cities aren't looking good. They're in ghettos and tenements. And so we want to fix these problems, and we want to turn these people into good Americans. And if they turn out to be good Protestants, so much the better. And so many of the, of the things that are, are mentioned here were causes that motivated these people. They wanted to fight. Um, where is it? Uh, Romanism, ecclesiasticism, rationalism, science was growing, Darwinism, infidelity, materialism, paganism itself. Um, and if you look at the minutes of, of meetings of the Evangelical Alliance, which continued to meet throughout the 19th century, despite these other group efforts that were also formed, you see paper, people giving papers on temperance, prohibition. You see people giving papers on family values and the need for having strong homes and for, for women to be good mothers. You see papers about child labor. People didn't want the kids working in the factories because they needed to be at home receiving the, the good maternal influences at home. Um, so you see Protestants in, this, in these ecumenical movements responding to the crises that they believed were affecting America and changing America into a less, um, a less Protestant place. And one of the things that really did concern these Protestants too, and the reason why 1870 is an important date, is because the, Vat the first Vatican Council met in 1869 to 1870. At, the, at, that at that council, the Pope asserted his infallibility formally for the first time, and maybe the, after that, Roman Catholics read it back into their history, but that was the first time that the Pope actually asserted papal infallibility. And these Protestants in America are looking at all these immigrants coming to the United States who are Roman Catholics, and now they now they're have to be reporting to an infallible Pope. This is a real problem for American democracy. There were already sentiments before the Civil War about what to do with Roman Catholics. And there were riots here in Philadelphia where Protestants held rallies and burned 
convents and, and, uh, and parishes during, during those things because Roman Catholics were loyal to a foreign power. The Pope was a prince in Europe and these Roman Catholics were, had, a, had a loyalty and a citizenship that wasn't the same as, as Americans. So there was a real fear of Roman, Roman Catholics as well and they were increasingly coming to America with the immigration. Um, <clears throat> and the workers provided by that immigration for big industry. So, this leads us then on, on the, the, the point D on the second page of the outline to, um, no, I get, I'm getting ahead of myself, sorry. I just have one more handout that, that shows you how ecumenism and um, social gospel were working hand in glove. Um, on one side of this paper is something called the social creed of the churches. <clears throat> and um, this was the first piece of business that the Federal Council of Churches did in 1908. They passed a creed. Creeds are a good thing. Creeds are what churches do. But this is a, a social creed for the churches. Um, it begins with this language, we deem it the duty of all Christian people to concern themselves directly with certain practical industrial problems. To us it seems that the churches must stand for equal and complete justice for all men in all stations of life. I'm not going to read through all of these. Um, if you go down maybe six points, for the protection of the worker from dangerous machinery, occupational disease, injuries, and mortality. I mean, that's a good thing, but is it something that the church needs to take a stand on? Isn't that something that the government might do? For the, for the abolition of child labor, um, Nature was actually opposed to legislation against child labor because he thought families should decide how their children would be employed. Um, let's see. Uh, for the re if go down about three or four more, for a release from employment one day in seven. So there you see, at least do see an attention to Sabbatarianism and making sure that people don't have to work seven days a week. A living wage as a, as a minimum in every industry is the next one. Um, <clears throat> and then it concludes at the bottom, to the toilers of America and to those who by organized effort are seeking to lift the crushing burdens of the poor and to reduce the hardships and uphold the dignity of labor, this council sends the greeting of human brotherhood and the pledge of sympathy and of help in a cause which belongs to all who follow Christ. Now, aside from any of the specifics here, this creed is important for underscoring how much the social gospel and ecumenism went hand in hand. And whether or not you agree with these specific proposals, um, it, it was the case that the reasons for trying to unite Protestants in the United States together, first in a federal council, then in an organic union, was to promote Christian civilization in the United States and to keep unchristian forces at bay. So this really was an effort to preserve a Christian America. Okay. Now the presenter of this plan in 1920, back to the 1920 at the General Assembly, the presenter is none other than J. Ross Stevenson. J. Ross Stevenson, you may not know, um, but J. Ross Stevenson was the president of Princeton Theological Seminary. And that should say to you, whoa. Uh, when you have the president of Princeton Seminary 
making a statement like this, that gets some attention, especially it's going to get attention of his faculty. And this, this means that what's happening in 1920 prefigures controversies that are going to emerge throughout the 1920s at Princeton between the administration and a majority of the faculty. So I just want to call your attention to that, that the person presenting this to the assembly was J. Ross Stevenson. And I think Machen was horrified that, that the president of Princeton would be identified with this plan. And then, following the plan, um, Princeton's faculty, the presenter's faculty's reaction is overwhelmingly negative. There are about a dozen articles published in the, in the Presbyterian, a weekly magazine published here in Philadelphia, that was the most conservative publication up until about 1929 in the Presbyterian Church. And um, various faculty members wrote for this. Uh, I have a quotation here from Benjamin Warfield. It was one of the last things that he wrote. It, it came in um, September of 1920, and he died in February of 1921. I also have an excerpt from Machen. Um, <clears throat> Uh, here, but let's let's just look at at, at at Warfield's reaction. And again, this was a plan called the Plan of Union of the of the Evangelical Churches. And so the the Princetonians are very keen on this word evangelical, as, as Warfield's quotation here indicates. Now it is perfectly obvious that the proposed creed, which you've seen on the other side of the uh, handout, contained nothing which is not believed by evangelicals, and it is equally obvious that it contains nothing which is not believed by sacerdotalists by the adherents of the Church of Rome, for example. And it is equally obvious that it contains nothing which is not believed by rationalists, by respectable Unitarians, say, for example. That is as much to say that the creed on the basis of which we are invited to form a union for evangelizing purposes contains nothing distinctively evangelical at all. Nothing at all of the body, of that body of saving truth for the possession of which the Church of Christ has striven and suffered for 2,000 years. It contains only a few starved and hunger-bitten dogmas of purely general character of, should be of infinite importance in the context of evangelical truth, but of themselves of no saving sufficiency. There is nothing about justification by faith in this creed. And that means that all the gains obtained in the great religious movement, which we call the Reformation, are cast out of the window. We are willing to treat the fundamental principles of the Reformation as no longer necessary to be professed and taught. There is nothing about the atonement in the blood of Christ in this creed. And that means that the whole gain of the long medieval search after truth is thrown summarily aside. Anselm goes out of the same window as the Reformation. There is nothing about sin and grace in this creed. So far as this creed tells us, there might be no such thing as sin in the world, and of course then, no such thing as grace. It's just a couple paragraphs of a, of a one-page article, probably that's about one-tenth of what Warfield had to say. Machen himself wrote three articles against the plan, having been a commissioner at the assembly, and here uh, are, I, I have some quotations here from Machen about this, but I'm not sure that I have <clears throat> time to read them, so I'll, I'll let you... Um, Look at those uh, for your afternoon Sabbath reading, if you care to. Um, but the, the point is that Princeton faculty were very much alarmed by this plan, and Machen was one of the most alarmed by this plan. 
And his opposition to this plan for organic union really becomes the basis for his opposition to liberalism. And it also draws him into contact with conservative Presbyterians in the Philadelphia vicinity. And I'll have more to say about that in weeks ahead. Um, so this, this plan of organic union is a very pivotal event in the life of the Presbyterian church and also in the, in the biography of J. Gresson Machen. So this, this then comes to the second point, not leaving much time for it, is... Um, Machen's book, The Origin of, of, of Paul's uh, Religion. And this was, as I say, um, a series of lectures that he had delivered, I believe, in 1920, the same year as, as the General Assembly. The book wasn't published until 1921. It was, a, it was an endowed lectureship at Union Theological Seminary of Richmond, Virginia. Machen, again, coming from the South, had many contacts with the Southern Presbyterian Church, and so it was, um, in some ways, a natural thing for him to, um, to give these lectures. <clears throat> uh, it also established him. He had been working primarily up until this point as a, as a younger scholar on the virgin birth of Christ and the accounts of the virgin birth, particularly in the, in the Gospel of Luke. But he'd also been working on Paul and particularly Paul's relationship to Jesus uh, for a the 400th anniversary of Calvin's birth in 1909, Princeton Seminary did a kind of anniversary volume, and Machen actually wrote a piece in there on Jesus and Paul. So he was also beginning to think about Paul, Pauline theology, was teaching that at Princeton. Um, and so it was natural for him to give this course of lectures. And the, the, the main reason for the book, Machen was trying to show that the liberal scholarly accounts of Paul's religion uh, were inadequate to account for what, why Paul believed what he did, especially about Christ. Um, some, some were trying to, to attribute Paul's teaching to natural religious forces, that Paul was building on the culture and religions of the period in which he was living. And Machen makes the case that you cannot look at Christianity that way, that it is not a syncretistic, syncretistic faith, that it is very much... Uh, a faith that's different and says no to all other religions. And that was true for Paul. And he's also making the point that Paul did not introduce a new form of Christianity, which was sort of the leading teaching of some German theologians, that Paul and Jesus were opposed, and Paul was sort of the second founder of Christianity. Machen was saying, no, Paul's very much teaching what he learned from Jesus himself and what Jesus himself also taught. And so I have a couple of quotations here, and it's interesting, the first one has to do um, with uh, the issues of the church very much in mind, even though this was a scholarly uh, forum, and, it was, and if you read The Origin of Machen's Religion, it can be tough going at times, because Machen is interacting with the, the uh, most current literature on Pauline uh, studies. But he also has a view on the church. So at the top here, the dependence of Christianity upon a particular conception of its origin and of its founder is now indeed being made the object of vigorous attack. There are many who maintain that Christianity is the same no matter what its origin was and that therefore the problem of origin should be kept entirely separate from the present religious interests of the church. Obviously, however, this indifference to the question as to what the origin of Christianity was depends upon a particular conception of what Christianity now is. It depends upon the conception which makes of Christianity simply a matter of a manner of life. That conception is indeed widespread, 
but it is by no means universal. There are still hosts of earnest Christians who regard Christianity not simply as a manner of life, but as a manner of life founded upon a message, upon a message with regard to the founder of the Christian movement. The most important practical question for the modern church is still the question of how Christianity came into, a, into being. So it's interesting. Machen is contrasting here Christianity as a manner of life versus Christianity as a religion founded upon a message about Christ. And that manner of life is very much reflected in the union efforts that we've been looking at, particularly it's reflected in the social creed of the churches adopted by the Federal Council of Churches. That's all about Christianity as a manner of life, you could argue. And he goes on later in this book to, to, to say this, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, apart from the works of the law, appears indeed in the epistle to the Galatians as a weapon against the Judaizers. But why was Paul opposed to the Judaizers in the first place? Certainly it was not merely because the Judaizing demand that Gentile Christians should be circumcised and keep the law would interfere in a practical way with the Gentile mission. Paul was not like some modern church leaders of the church who are interested in mere bigness. Here's a little shot at the church union movement. He was not interested in the extension of the church if such extension involved the sacrifice of principle. Nothing could be more utterly unhistorical than the representation of Paul as a practical missionary, developing the doctrine of justification by faith in order to get rid of a doctrine of the law which would be a hindrance in the way of his Gentile mission. Such a representation reverses the real state of the case. The real reason why Paul was devoted to the doctrine of justification by faith was not that it made possible the Gentile mission, but rather that it was true. Paul was not devoted to the doctrine of justification by faith because of the Gentile mission. He was devoted to the Gentile mission because of the doctrine of justification by faith. There could be no greater error, therefore, than that of representing the Pauline doctrine of justification by faith as a mere afterthought, as a mere weapon in controversy. Paul was interested in salvation from the guilt of sin no whit less than in salvation from the power of sin, in justification no whit less than in the new creation. Indeed, it is a great mistake to separate the two sides of his message. There lie the root error of the customary modern formula for explaining the origin of the Pauline theology. According to that formula, the forensic element in Paul's doctrine of salvation, which centers in justification, was derived from Judaism. And the vital or essential element which centers in the new creation was derived from paganism. In reality, the two elements are inextricably intertwined. The sense of guilt was always central in the longing for salvation which Paul desired to include in his hearers. And it imparted to that longing an ethical quality which was totally lacking in the mystery religions. And salvation in the Pauline churches consisted not merely in the assurance of a blessed immortality, not merely in the assurance of a present freedom from the bondage of fate, not merely in the possession of a new power of holy living, but also and everywhere in the consciousness that the guilt of sin had been removed by the cross of Christ. So that gives you a feel for some of the, the arguments that Machen's making to show that, that Christianity really does originate not from these, trying to combine these insights from other religions, whether it be Jewish or pagan, but that it is its own distinct entity and it's reflecting a, a, a unique message. Um, and so what I'm hoping to show in today's uh, lesson is that 
Three things are going on by 1920 with Machen. <clears throat> One is that he is an established New Testament scholar, as this book attests that the origin of Paul's religion. Um, second is that Machen is emerging as a Presbyterian churchman. And thirdly, that the sides of the Presbyterian controversy are now, are now clear, even before the Presbyterian controversy has really been established. On one side, you have people like Machen emphasizing what that the message of the church is salvation from sin, that this is the gospel of the church. And on the other side, you have people saying that the message of the church is social uplift and morality. And that is really going to be what drives the Presbyterian controversy, and Machen is already uh, working on that in 1920. So I will conclude there and maybe take one question or comment if anyone so inclined. Seeing no hands, let's close in prayer then. <clears throat> Thank you for listening to this episode of Historia Ecclesia. If you would like to hear more or read more from Daryl Hart, please visit oldlife.org. If you'd like to hear more of our programs, including Christ the Center and the Reformed Media Review, please visit reformedforum.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you join us again next time on Historia Ecclesia.